Amen. Like I said, John chapter 6, but I'm going to start in John chapter 14. We're somewhere around halfway through our sermon series called Miracles, where we're looking at the seven distinct miracles the Apostle John gives us in the book of John. Now, just again, Jesus did way more than seven miracles, but John give us, gives us seven miracles, and we're going to come to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But before we do, I want to read John 14, verse 12. Jesus is saying this to his disciples the night before he dies on the cross, and he says to his disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, amen, if you believe in Jesus, so this, this verse is actually for you. I want you to hear that. Jesus doesn't say, truly, truly, I say to only you disciples, and only you disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, and I want you to underline that word believe, because it's an important one. In John's gospel, the word believe is way more than just intellectual belief. There's people, you know, people say, like, I totally believe, and they have this head knowledge belief, but for John, the word believe is not just head knowledge, it's heart. It's someone who not only makes a declaration of faith with their mouth and their mind, but someone who makes a declaration of faith in their life, in their heart. These are people who are all in for Jesus saying, he's my king, I follow him, I believe he died on the cross, I believe he rose from the dead, I'm all in for Jesus, amen? And here's what he says about those of you who believe. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. If you're sitting there going, what, what works is he talking about? He's talking about all the works he has done. All of them. He goes on. And greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Do you believe that? Every time I read that, every time I read that, look, whenever I come to my, you know, my reading plan and I come to John 14, 12, it doesn't matter how many times I've read this verse, every time I come to that and I go, that's pretty astounding. Do I really believe? Do I really believe that I will do greater things, that the works that Jesus did, and even greater works? Do you believe that? Now, one of the commentaries I was reading, um, D.A. Carson, he wrote the foremost commentary on the book of John, not my opinion, lots of other smart people's opinions, and, and he kind of defines, well, what, is, what does John mean by greater? What do you mean greater? He starts out by saying, this is an astounding statement. No two ways about it. We will do the works of Jesus and even greater. And he points out that it's not going to be greater in terms of quantity. Jesus is not saying, you're going to do way more stuff than I do. It's, it's probably not even greater in, in quality per se. I mean, Jesus 
rose Lazarus from the dead, and he was dead for four days. That's pretty impressive, right? Like, dead, dead, like dead, dead. Like, he had the mummy clothing and everything, not mostly dead, like completely dead. And he ran, like, that's, that's crazy, right? But greater, what sense of greater? And, and D.A. Carson makes this point, and, he, and I think that he's right, and he's like... Jesus has not died on the cross and Jesus has not risen from the dead yet. The purpose of Jesus' works were to show people who he is. He is the Son of God. The works that we do point not just to Jesus being the Son of God, but point to the work that he has done. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. That what we are pointing people to through our works is not how great we are, but how great Jesus is and how we need Jesus. He's not just the Son of God. He's actually even more than that. He's the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead. And when Jesus did all of these signs, he was pointing them to who he was, not fully to what he was going to do. It's like this. What might be an example of the works of Jesus or even greater works? If you turn to Acts 2, Peter preaches the first sermon. Jesus has risen from the dead, conquered death, risen from the dead, preaches this sermon, and how many people get saved? Do you remember this? How many people get saved? 3,000 people come to salvation. Greater works than these. 3,000 people went from death to life. This verse is saying Jesus wants to use you for his incredible glory and your joy. To do things like leading people to salvation. To do things like pointing people to the gospel. Hear me. Jesus wants to use you. This is why we named the church the Mission Church. God has called you to live on mission. And the mission is to make the gospel known. You are an ambassador. Can you think of anything more incredible? Can you think of a work in your life that would be greater than being used by God to bring people to salvation. Jesus wants to use you. Now, here's the reason why I start here. Is the miracle we're about ready to look at, the feeding of the 5,000, it's one of the few miracles where Jesus doesn't do it alone. Jesus involves his disciples in it. I, I wonder if G, this is kind of like the, like, all right, guys, let's see how, how you do here. But I love that. Don't you love that? That Jesus is like, I could do all the miracles. You get to be the audience. But here Jesus is like taking contestants from the crowd. Hey, you want to be in? Like, you know that? You know that person? Like, hey, I need a crowd. I need participants. I won't do that tonight here. But, but he's like pulling in his disciples 
How many of you want to do great things for Jesus? Amen? I think this passage gives us a glimpse of of how we can walk in that. How we can walk in that. This is not like a thorough, here's how you do it, as much as how we see Jesus invite his disciples and, and what kind of keeps them from it and what draws them in to actually walk in it. And so John 6 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, in a large crowd. Now, we're going to learn that there's 5,000 men. We, we hear that in Matthew's gospel. This is, by the way, one of the few miracles that Jesus does that all four gospels tell us about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You can all hear their story of the feeding of the 5,000. And, and most of the details are exactly the same. And then there are some precise details that some of the authors want us to hear and want us to know. Matthew, for example, wants us to know that there's 5,000 men not counting women and children. And so th- this is a crowd of upwards of 20 plus thousand people when you throw women and children into the mix. And it says, Jesus went up on the mountain... There he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him. Now, just I'm going to pause here for a moment. Um, A large crowd is coming towards him. Now, we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel that they'd been there for some time. Um, Jesus had been teaching them. Um, actually, the reason why they went to such a desolate place is Jesus' disciples had come back from their first, basically, mission trip of sorts. And Jesus is like, hey, let's get alone. Let's kind of get some R&R. And they go and get alone. And people hear like, oh, you know, Jesus went so-and-so place. Let's go find him. And so this massive crowd follows Jesus into this desolate place. Jesus has compassion on them. The disciples, you know, they're like, I thought we were on vacation. I thought we were going to come out here and rest and relax, and now 20,000 people are here. And Jesus starts teaching to them. But then they get hungry, right? And there's kids there, right? Oh, man. Anybody have hungry kids at some point? Like, holy smokes. They're monsters. With, I mean, well-fed still. Not fed. So you can imagine and, and in the other gospels, it's pointed out that Jesus is legitimately concerned. He says, I can't, I can't send them away. Like they, they might not make it back. They might faint. John doesn't give those very specific details. And instead, he gets right to the point. Now, listen to this. We'll pause here in a moment and really unpack this. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. Verse 6, hang on to this one. He said this to test him. (laughs) This is a test. That's my sermon title. I'm not big on sermon titles because whenever I put them on our what's happening, I end up changing the name of the sermon title anyway. So just, just, maybe I should just put the passage. Um, This is a test. I love it. Jesus says, I just love that line. Only John tells us this, though. He says, it says, um, he said this to test him, 
for he himself knew what he would do. Did you catch that? This is a setup. It's a setup. Jesus knows everything that's about ready to happen. He knows what he's going to do. And so he asks Philip a question. I'm going to read it one more time just to make sure we've got it. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him. Now, this Greek word for test, there's two different understandings that, that we can have for it depending on the context. One is a negative and one is more of a positive. So the negative context of this word test would be what might be, it might actually be translated to tempt. Like um, in John chapter 8, I believe it is, it talks about how the Pharisees were questioning Jesus and they did this to tempt him. Same Greek word. Testing to tempt, testing to trap. But then this Greek word for test has a positive sense, like test for maturity, test for growth. Kind of like how a teacher gives a test. Hopefully they're not doing it to tempt the students. They're doing it for their growth. They're doing it for their maturity. Or think about how gold is what? Is tested by fire. The fire is not trying to tempt the gold. It's, it's, it's testing the quality, the maturity, the purity of the gold. That's the same exact sense in which Jesus is testing Philip. He's testing the disciples. This has to do with maturity. Now, what's the test? This is a test. I, I, I see two tests in here. One comes with Philip and his response, and the other comes from Andrew, his response. Let's let's read them both, and then we'll talk about these two tests. He said this to test them, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread. By the way, 200 denarii, one denarii was, um, one denarius was one day's worth of wage. One day's wage. So 200, that's about eight months worth of wages. Take your yearly salary and then make about two-thirds of it, and that's how much. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Test number one. By the way, before we get to the test, do you see Jesus drawing them in? Jesus knows what he's going to do, and he's, at, he's, he's, he's bringing Philip in. Test number one, when we encounter a problem, what kind of attitude do we have? When we encounter a problem, a challenge, a hardship, a trial, a tribulation, I think that we can have one of, two pos- one, of, one of two attitudes. An attitude of, this is why it's impossible. And an attitude of, what an opportunity. We can have an attitude of faith or an attitude of fear. We can have an attitude of being critical or we can have an attitude of being courageous. We can have an attitude of being hopeful or we can have an attitude of hopeless. You might read this and go, where do you get this attitude thing? 
Notice that Philip doesn't answer Jesus' question. Did you catch that? Jesus says, hey, Philip, where are we going to find enough bread? Philip's response is straight to the impossibilities. He doesn't even need a calculator. He doesn't even need an Excel sheet. He goes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. First of all, ridiculous question. Let me answer the question you should have asked. And it's this. What would it take? Let me tell you what it would take. It would take 200 days worth of pay. And it would not even be enough to give everyone a little. Straight to negativity. Jesus said to you and I in John 16, in this world, you will, it's a promise, you will have tribulation. How many of you experienced that life is filled with tribulations, trials, hardships. I, maybe I should have known this, but I feel like the older I get, they just keep coming. It's just like one after another after another. And people are like, well, if you stopped having kids, you know, it wouldn't happen, you know, right? But trials, tribulations, tragedies, hardships, problems, they're coming at us all the time. What kind of attitude do we have? And, and Philip, right from the beginning, is like, Jesus, nope. Here's why we can't do it. Here's why we shouldn't do it. Here's why it's impossible. May I remind us, we all want to see Jesus work miraculously in our lives. I don't know about you. I want to have a life that can only be explained by Jesus, period. I want to live a life in which people go, I have no idea. God must be at work in you or through you or by you or with you, something like that. That's the kind of life I want to live. I want to see and experience Jesus miraculously work in my life. But listen, to see Jesus work miraculously in your life, you need a situation that necessitates Jesus to miraculously work in your life. Track him? What if every problem, what if every hardship, what if every difficulty that was not caused by your sin, by the way, what if it wasn't an impossibility as much as it was an opportunity? What if we looked at the problems of our life, the hard stuff of our life, and instead of getting critical or discouraged, we thought, what an opportunity for God to work and to move. What an opportunity for Jesus to do what only he can do. And Philip ain't quite there yet. And so you have problems. I know you do. I have problems. You have hardships. I have hardships. We all have difficulties in our life. What's your attitude are you focused on all the impossibilities or are you focused on the opportunity of maybe what God wants to do in your life? 
And here's the powerful thing about attitude. It's the one thing you have complete control over, isn't it? You don't get to choose what shows up on the news cycle. You don't always get to choose what your boss says to you or what your coworkers say to you. You don't always get to choose whether your kids get sick or don't get sick or whether they talk back or don't talk back. You and I, there's a lot of things in our life that we do not get to choose nor have control over. But there is one thing you and I have complete control over, attitude. And I love I love Andrew's response. Andrew comes by. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Do do you hear the difference in response there? There's no way. And Andrew's like, here's something. And I want to be clear here. This doesn't mean that we just like spin this positive attitude. Like, I'm just going to be happy. I'm just going to be positive. I don't, I don't think it means that. And, and there are some of you who are like, well, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm critical. I just, I like to ask good questions. I'm not, it's not that I'm critical. I just think that wisdom looks at all the reasons why it shouldn't work, right? Like, you know, we have some engineers in here. Like, God bless you, right? That's the, you're, you're really, really good at that. And so in no way is it saying that, that we shouldn't look at the hard stuff of our life and just have this peachy positivity to it. But we also maybe shouldn't be critical either. Here's the one question that has helped me most. Is when I hit a hardship is I ask this question, God, what are you teaching me? I know this is a test. I know it's a test. But again, not a test to tempt, but a test like gold that's put in fire where the dross burns off and you're more pure. I wonder if Jesus wants to do some work in Philip here. I wonder if Jesus is trying to grow in mature Philip And so asking yourself that question, Lord, this is really, really hard. What are you trying to teach me? What's the test here? And sometimes over time, he'll begin to answer. And, And so test number one, when challenges come, they will. When hardships come, they will. What will you focus on? The impossibilities or the opportunities. And most of us, if we were to look back on our lives, some of your greatest accomplishments started from your greatest pain. Some of the things that God is going to use you most with started as a problem, or rather, an opportunity. Test number one, What kind of attitude are we going to have? Test number two, I I love what happens next. It it, it says, um, 
one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they for so many? It's not clear whether the boy comes to Andrew or Andrew goes to the boy. You get a sense that maybe the boy made himself known. So there's a whole another sermon about this. This lad, the King James Version is lad. This lad who's got five, not loaves, John wants us to know they're barley loaves. What's a barley loaf? Next time you make yourself a sandwich and you pull out that piece of bread, that looks something similar to a barley loaf. Think a single piece of bread. And there's five of them. That would feed my son, right? And then there's two fish, and these were like pickled fish. So think of more like sardines. You know, this is not the king salmon that he hauled out of the, the river nearby, right? But, he, but here's, here's two things that I see from Andrew. The first overall one is this. He joins Jesus. He just, he, he joins Jesus. But, but I noticed two things. One, sometimes we can get so overwhelmed by all that we can't do that we don't walk faithfully in the little that we can do. We get so overwhelmed about what's going on in Russia, Ukraine. I mean, it's overwhelming. I don't know about you, but there's a sense in which I'm going, I don't even know where to start. Part of it has to do with your and my soul was not created for the global news cycle. But here's what I can do. I can pray. I can pray. That's, a, that's actually a really good place to start. You have no idea what to do with that, that ministry in Africa. Well, you know, maybe focus on the one thing you can do. You don't know the, the way that you're supposed to be all in in your local church and how you can serve and, and what that might look like. You just know you want to be used by God and you want to, to, to play a significant role in the local church. Okay, just, just start with, with a step. And that's what I love about Andrew here. And, and this, is, this is all that God asks us. I mean, when you look at the parable of the talents, he gives one five, another two, and another one. The guy with two, he doesn't complain about the guy with five. You ever catch that? He's like, okay, I got two. I guess I'll just be faithful with this. You want to join Jesus in the work he wants to do in you, through you, by you, with you, for you. Just, just, just walk faithfully. You may have someone in your life that's doing way more than you could ever dream. What if Jesus didn't call you to that? What if he just wants you to be faithful here? Begin by being faithful with what you can do rather than doing nothing at all. And then here's the other thing. This is so big. He puts the little he has in his hands into Jesus' hands. You know, our math equation goes like this. Five loaves plus two fish equals seven meals tops. Jesus' math is, I don't, like, he's 
he, he's got some wicked math, okay? Because five plus two equals somehow feeding 20,000 people with 12 baskets left over. And I think this kind of goes back to th- th- that first point, th- that point of our attitude, of, of not just getting focused on the impossibilities, but being focused on the opportunities. And someone's going, well, what do we do with the impossibilities? What do we do with that thought we have of, I'm not sure if this is going to work, or I'm, I, I, I'm scared, I'm nervous. Here's what you do. You do what Andrew does. Here, Jesus, you probably know what to do. I think what this looks like is prayer. Prayer, 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 prayer. And Andrew does a form of that. He just comes to Jesus and says, this is all I've got. He even acknowledges like, listen, this probably is not enough. This is impossible, but here, here you go. So you and I, we we have problems in our life day after day after day. And our natural reaction is probably to think about the impossibilities rather than the opportunities. Our tendency is to maybe get frustrated or overwhelmed rather than thinking about maybe God's trying to teach something in me or maybe God's trying to do something through me. And then mistake number two is then we just try and figure out to do, how to do it by ourselves altogether. What if we started by going, okay, I'm going to hit the pause button and I'm not going to get caught off guard by how overwhelmingly difficult this is. I'm going to start with maybe what opportunities God is setting before me. And then instead of trying to figure out this myself or doing some math equation to prove how it could never work at all, I am going to set the little I do have before Jesus and just say, will you help? This is all I got. Will you help? And I'll just take one step faithfulness at a time. Just, Just pray. Just ask the Lord for help. And if you go to that passage in John chapter 14 that we started with, I read verse 12, but I didn't read verse 13, so I want to read it to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. By the way, that's a promise that he's making. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that sounds like prayer, doesn't it? It should because it's exactly what he's referring to. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask. Ask. Here Jesus is inviting the disciples to be a part of this miracle, and they weren't run into a roadblock by by focusing on the impossibilities rather than the opportunities. And then I love Andrew. He overcomes this roadblock by saying, hey, it ain't much, but here's what I've got. I'm going to put it in your hands. And let's just conclude by reading how the rest of this passage plays out. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Did you catch it? Okay, guys, get to work. Get all the people to sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as many as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. One thing worth pointing out is in, I believe it's Luke's gospel, um, the, the loaves are literally multiplying as the disciples ha- hand them out. The language at least points to that. Jesus gives the loaves to the disciples, and then the loaves are like multiplying in the hands of the disciples. It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, hey, watch, do this. This is going to be awesome. And then there's leftovers. Of course there is, right? They're hungry. (laughs) I wonder, yeah, sorry, side note. But man, there's leftovers. Jesus is so generous. So they gathered them up and and filled 12 baskets with with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So there's more left over than when they started with. Jesus is great like that, isn't he? When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to make him king, an earthly king, most likely a military king. And Jesus won't have it. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to be an earthly king. He came to be our eternal king. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And so I love this. He flees. He, it, as if to say... All that we, all that Jesus does through you better not be for your agenda. It's for our king. Whose glory is greater, your glory or God's glory? God's glory. And that's exactly what Jesus invites you and I into. To live a life for his glory to do works for his glory, for Jesus to work not just in you, but also through you and by you and with you. And it often starts with a problem. It often starts with a hardship. It often starts with a tribulation that you can't do by yourself because you need him. So may we focus not on the impossibilities, but on the opportunities. God, what are you doing? What are you doing here? I know you're doing something. And may we walk faithfully in the very little that God has given us and watch him multiply. And may we take the little we have in our hands and put it in his. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father God, who are we? Who who in the world are we that not only would you save us from our sin, give us eternal life, call us your children, but you also invite us into playing an essential role to fulfilling your kingdom, of doing great works for your name, Lord, we are honored. 
we are thankful that you would, you would desire to do that in us and through us and by us and with us. Lord, would you check our hearts? Would you check our attitudes, Lord? When problems come, we have a way of complaining or grumbling or feeling overwhelmed. Would you help us just press pause and just go, okay, what if this is a test? What if Jesus is testing? What, what if Jesus wants to do something in this or through this? Lord, would you, would you give us confidence in you, courage in you? Lord, would you, would you give us the faithfulness to, to take the little we do have and just lay it before you? And we ask that you'd multiply it. God, would you be glorified in, in the rest of our time that we share together as we worship you? Pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's worship.